Good morning, everyone. Hey, welcome to church. Yeah, give the Lord some praise, man. Worship was awesome. I mean, I love being able to gather together and just lift up the name of Jesus. I love when we can get together. It's so cool to see so many faces coming back from a period of, of, of you know, being distant and stuff like that. So it's really cool. I'm so glad you guys are here. Today we're going to start a series called One Another. Everybody say One Another. It's a new series that we're starting. I'm super excited. But before we do this, before we launch into this, I want to start with a kind of a trivia question. Do we have any people who are like trivia buffs? Like, like you go to trivia nights and like you, you compete. Am I the only dork in here? I am, I guess. Okay, yeah, all right, all right, yeah, trivia. I love, does anybody like trivia, right? Okay, okay, there's more hands, cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I like trivia. I like, I like uh, my wife says I know a lot of nothing, right? Like, I'm just like, I've got these like random facts just stored away uh, that I pull out from time to time. And I got one I want to share with you. This is a trivia question for everybody in the house. The question is this, which animal is most responsible for causing, uh, or which animal is responsible for causing the most injuries to visitors of the Grand Canyon? Okay, here's our choices. Is it A, bears, B, wild horses, C, squirrels, or D, scorpions? Who thinks it's A, bears? Don't answer out loud. Just Okay, who thinks it's wild horses? Who thinks it's squirrels? Who thinks it's scorpions? Who is afraid to lift up their hand in public? <laughs> there you go, there you go. Awesome, okay. So if, if you guessed, if you would have guessed D, scorpions, you would have been wrong. Uh, if you would have answered C, squirrels, you're right. The answer is squirrel. Check out this. It says the U.S. National Park Service reports that the rock squirrel, it's actually specifically known as the Mexican rock squirrel, come on, is, uh, is the most dangerous animal in the Grand Canyon, accounting for an average of 30 bodily injuries to visitors a week. Fun facts, yeah. The U.S. National Park Service reports that the rock squirrel is the most dangerous. Uh, literally, when I was at the Grand Canyon, my wife and I, we noticed that almost every 100 yards, there was a sign that read something like this, enjoy your trip, don't get bit, right? Like it literally says, don't get bit, right? Enjoy your trip, don't get bit. This sign was everywhere. Every hundred yards we were walking, there was a sign, don't feed the squirrels. You're going to get bit. Don't, don't ruin this trip. Don't, like literally there's a picture of me and there was like a big no and it had like a, a potato chip. Like don't feed these animals. Um, and it's, it's honestly, it's because these animals have been fed so much by humans that they've kind of lowered their fear, like their, their, their reservoir of fear or whatever, and, and, and they like come up to humans and they will eat right out of their hands, uh, but they're still wild animals and they will bite. So if you have something that they want and you're not giving it to them soon enough, they will come and bite you. Now, I don't want to terrify you and make you afraid of squirrels, uh, but that's literally what happens. So they tell you, don't feed, just don't feed them. Like, stay maybe about 50 feet away from them. Uh, but what happened is at the Grand Canyon, my wife and I were there, and as we were walking, we saw this sign everywhere, and we're like, man, we're not seeing too many squirrels. We finally arrived at what was called Ooh-Ah Point. It was a lookout, and if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon, it's a, it's a pretty narrow, if you're going to hike it, there, it's a pretty narrow trail. It's a, con- a constant, like, decline into this valley and up to the Colorado River, but as we're going down, uh, you can only pass maybe uh, one person side by side or two people side by side. That's how wide it is. But then you get to these lookout points, and it opens up, and that's where people usually have lunch, and that's where the signs are saying, don't feed the squirrels. Now, one individual, a guy that was there while we were there, did not heed the signs. The many signs that he saw, he just did not even care. He just forsake them all, forsook them all. He gets down there, 
And he thinks it would be a great idea to open up a banana and put it on his chest to have the squirrels come and take pictures with him. And his wife also thought it was a good idea because she was like trying to snap a great picture. And uh, no, don't worry, like some of you are already having like faces of terror, like he got mauled. No, he didn't. Uh, uh, but anyway, like what did happen is that a squirrel came, was eating the bananas, and they did get their picture. But then that squirrel immediately jumped off of his shoulder, ran into his backpack, took out his lunch. Not even kidding. He grabbed his lunch, his Ziploc lunch bag, and he ran off. And then he looked back and he gave him one of these. He lit up a cigarette and flicked it at him and then blew his wife a kiss. Like these squirrels are vicious. They're horrible. They're mean, right? So there was constant signs everywhere. This guy did not pay attention to the signs and he ended up going the rest of the day lunchless. Okay? The point I'm trying to convey with the story is this. What is repeated often, often deserves our repeated attention. What is repeated often, the signs were constantly there, glaring, trying to point this guy's direction to these signs so that he would not get his lunch taken or his finger, uh, but he did not heed the signs. I'm here to tell you what is often or what is repeated often, often deserves our repeated attention. Today, we're starting a series called One Another. Everybody say One Another. The reason why we're starting this series is because in Scripture, in the Bible, we see this word used a lot. In fact, I want you to know something, that God is greatly concerned with how we treat one another. He cares about that. You know, Christianity is unlike most religions. Most religions emphasize the self, the individual, reaching either a, a heightened sense of enlightenment or, or somehow, uh, you know, really working on self. And yes, God is focused on the self. Thankfully, we do serve a God who does love us. He knew you before you were formed in your mother's womb. He cares about you. God is a very intimate and personable and relatable God. Thank the Lord that he is like that, that we're not just a bunch of beings that he stands off and says, yeah, I created them, but, you know, they'll be fine. He is very personable, but I believe sometimes in the church we can overemphasize the personal relationship with Jesus and kind of lose sight of the need for one another. Now, do we uphold that? Do we love the personal? Yes, I love, I love when I'm, in my, I'm, I'm driving alone. I get to throw up the worship music, and it's just me and the Holy Spirit. Like I'm, I just say, Jesus, take the wheel. My eyes are closed. And Just kidding. That doesn't happen. But, but I do love these personal moments, but, but when we look at Scripture, we see this constant need for us to value and hold dear this concept of one another. You see, the cross... Yes, we know it. Jesus came and, and he restored our, our vertical relationship with the Father, but he also came to restore our horizontal relationship with each other, with one another. When we look at Scripture, we see this word, aleleon, one another, and it's used over a hundred times. It's repeated 100 times in the New Testament. 59 of those times are referencing relationships in the church. 33% of them are dealing with church unity, the church being united. 33% uh, of the time, the rest of it is uh, to tell the church to love one another. And 15% of the time, it's the word one another is used to instruct attitudes of humility. You see, the frequent use of one another reveals the importance of community in the church. That Jesus came 
not so that we would just come and consume a space and a pew, give a couple of amens and do our weekly tithe and sing some songs and go home, go home just changing ourselves. No, he came not just so that we would take a spot in a pew. Yeah, he died for that, but he also died so that we could live life together. This is why when we establish the values of our church, 10 values that we say these are our non-negotiables, these are the things that we don't budge, these are the guardrails of our church keeping us on the road that God is trying to lead us on, we said community with others would be one of those values. Community with others literally means this, this value of ours. It says that in church we fight against anonymity. What is anonymity? This idea of just coming and sneaking in and being anonymous. And tr- trust me, I've, I've desired that. There was the points in my life where I wanted to just be anonymous in church. I want nobody to talk to me. During greeting, I'm going to the bathroom and I want, uh, you know, like, like I've, I've been in those moments. But Jesus came not so that we would be anonymous in church, but so that we could be a community. He came so that we would know each other and love each other. He came not just for the one, but for one another. The frequent use of one another reveals the importance of community in the church. I love the way another pastor said it, Andy Stanley. He said this. He wrote this in a book. He said, the primary function of the early church, which is our model for how we should do church, the primary function of the early church was one anothering one another. We see them focusing on how to live out in community how to feed the the orphans and the widows, and how to deal with conflict, and and, and how to uh, provide for the needs of others. We constantly see this this idea of we're going to get through this. In fact, if there is an an infringement upon the church of today, I would say in the early church, in the early Testament church, the New Testament church, uh, there was no idea, there wasn't this idea of of church hopping. Like if you got offended somewhere, you had to deal with the offense if you were going to still be a part of the church. And now we've created an environment where it's almost become consumerized, like a consumerist mentality. And and the church is just like Costco or Walmart. If you're offended at Walmart, you're going to take your business to Costco. And we do this time and time again. And, And Jesus is trying to say, hey, I have called you to work things out with one another we need this one another is important in fact we see that jesus in john chapter 13 we find ourselves at what is called the last discourse if i were to give you an outline or a snapshot view of what happened in the gospel of john chapters 1 through 12 would be the the galilean ministry jesus traveling all around the region of galilee it would be comprised of 3 years of ministry healing people teaching in public settings it would be it would, it would be full with full with that and then in john chapter 13 it shifts the entire gospel shifts and it goes from being this this big look at jesus's 3 year ministry to a snapshot of what happened in a week's time the rest of the gospel of john from 13 to the end it's all about what happened in the final week of jesus's life before he went to the cross before he uh resurrected and and ascended to the father we see this and and in john chapter 13 we are given this very intimate expose of what is called the last discourse where jesus is having this intimate setting at at a passover feast and he's And he's teaching them these final words, and he ends his final teaching with his disciples as as they uh, uh, pre-resurrected Jesus. He, He gives them this final teaching in the flesh, and he says this, My children, 
And this wasn't a condescending, passive-aggressive, like he wasn't looking down on them. If anything, he was saying it from the, the lens of a, of, of a loving father. He's saying, my children, my disciples, the ones whom I, I called, the ones whom I'm, I'm going to give everything for. He's very intimate here, and he's speaking this over us today as well. He says, my children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. What is he talking about? He's talking about the cross, this journey that I'm about to begin, the cross, this, this idea of, of me taking upon the sins of the world, you can't do that for yourself. You and I need Jesus. He is the only one who could bear the sin and the weight of our sin. He's the only one who could carry the cross that would lead to our freedom and forgiveness and redemption. So he looks to the disciples and says, where I'm going, just like I told the Jews, the leaders, where I'm going, you cannot come. But a new command I give you. Love one another. Love one another. There's this instance that we see here, that alaleon, this, this word that we see repeated a hundred times in Scripture. What Jesus is saying at the very beginning is that you and I should love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. He, he modeled it to us. It's not just a, a lofty command coming from a boss who's afraid to get his hands dirty. He's saying, no, 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 I, I've already demonstrated what it means to love. I've displayed it. I've modeled it with my life. This what you have seen me do to you, do to one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you say this with me. Love one another. If I were to just break this down, these, these, these few verses here, Jesus' final teaching is this. Church, love one another. It's a command for the church. Notice it wasn't a suggestion. He's like, hey, if the time's right, if, this, if, if the songs are, are, are perfectly picked and your heart is peaked and the pastor's on point, love one another. If the conditions are okay, if everything is going your way, love one another. No, he's saying this is a command. In every circumstance, through every offense, in every season, at every moment, church, love one another. It's a command, and it's modeled to the church. How many of you are thankful that Jesus came and demonstrated love to us? He didn't just say this as a, as a great sage or a philosopher. He came and he modeled and he demonstrated love. He modeled it to the church. And the beautiful thing that I love about this, the very end there, it says, it's the confirmation of the church. Our love. It's not whether or not we have a 501c3 non-tax uh, status. It's, it's, not, it's not the fact that whether or not we have a building that makes us a church. It's, it's not whether or not we have a worship pastor or a kids pastor or a youth pastor. If we got every, all the conditions right, the, what makes us the church is our love for one another. He says, model it. It's a command. And then he tells us this, and the world will know you are my disciples if you love one another. Are we known for our love? Are we known for more of what we're against than what we are for? And, and I'm not at, at any point suggesting that the church shouldn't stand for truth. We should stand for truth. But I hope and pray that when people look at us, they say, beyond truth, 
They stand for love. The sacrificial, go the extra mile, turn the other, treat, turn the other cheek kind of love that doesn't judge, that doesn't harbor and hold on to offenses, that rather preserve relationships than to cast people aside. The church must be known for love. Friends, you and I must be known for our love for one another. And you know what's interesting is that Jesus doesn't just end this here. He continues on and he begins to demonstrate what that love looks like. So in, in, the, previous, in the previous verses, we're going to read that today. We're in John chapter 13. Again, this is the Passion Week. This is Jesus' final teachings before he goes to the cross. Look what he says here to his disciples. Verse 1, it says this. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. One interesting note that you're going to see in this, in this narrative, these 17 verses, you're going to frequently see the phrase, Jesus knew. John is trying to convey to the church and to the listeners of this gospel that there was never a moment in Jesus' ministry where he was surprised by anything. There was never a moment where Jesus was like, I didn't see that coming. He was never surprised. He knew everything. He still had the sovereignty of God, the wisdom of God. He he had this insight. He knew what was going to happen. The reason why John is bringing this up is because there is another person in this narrative who most of us would have been surprised by. His name is Judas, who betrayed Jesus. And John is trying to convey that there was never a moment where Jesus walked hesitantly to the cross or apprehensively towards Jerusalem. Have you ever gone to a haunted house? Not really haunted. It's like a lunch lady and like, like, like it's not really haunted there. But anyway, have you ever gone in one of those? I, I, I hate them. I like, don't invite me. I ain't going. Uh, I just be casting demons out everywhere I go. I'm just like doing this and just, in the name of Jesus, out. And it's like, dude, it's like a sixth grader. Chill, right? But yeah, I'm not, I'm not a fan of them. And sometimes I've gone to like corn mazes and then I got there too late and then it becoming a haunted corn maze without my knowing. And I'm there and I'm just like, doing one of these like everywhere I go like I'm trying to be cool still but I'm just like kind of nervous and I'm walking like this and one foot in front of the other it's not like a you know there's some people I'm super jealous of like there's like walking like yeah there's a scary guy there I'm not afraid there was never a point in Jesus' ministry as he was going to Jerusalem where he was doing one of these the Bible tells us that his eyes were pointed towards Jerusalem He was ministering to people and loving people and caring for people and his eyes were always fixated on Jerusalem. He knew where he was going. He was never afraid. He knew that Judas would betray him. He knew that his disciples would flee. He knew all of these things and that never once hindered the love that he had for his people. Church, you and I are called to love the same way. Not with apprehension, not with walls put up because I've been hurt before. You and I are called to love recklessly. Not out of fear of what may happen or what has happened, but out of a full concern and awareness that God loves us and that he demonstrated his love towards us. We are called to love without measure. This is the first thing we see here. We are called to love without measure. How do we see that? Look what it says in that verse there. It said he loved them to the very end. Now you're like, oh, cool, so he loved them to the point that he died. No, 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 that word to the very end, that phrase to the very end, it does not mean he loved them to the very end of his life. It literally means this, he loved them to the fullest and greatest extent. 
There was not a single crevice in the vessel of his love for his people. It was full. There was never a moment where he, he you know, kind of wavered or kind of spilled out and he was lacking in love. He loved his disciples to the full. Do you realize today that God loves you to the fullest measure? He doesn't love a former version of yourself that was closer to him. He's not withholding his love until you love him a little bit greater. You right now have at your disposal the full measure of the love of God. Thank you, Jesus. It's not based on my performance. It's based on his character. It's based on what Jesus has accomplished. Come on, that alone should get us excited. So if we love one another, what are we supposed to do? We are to love to the fullest measure. Secondly, we are to love despite betrayal. Show of hands, tell the truth. Shame the devil, tell the truth. Who has been betrayed? Who's ever been betrayed in this life? Cheated on? Promised you would get a promotion and it went to someone else? Had money stolen from? Opportunities taken? Have been let down by a leader? Maybe a pastor? We've all been betrayed. We've all experienced this. But here is the kicker, so has Jesus. And what we're about to read in this passage, I want you to notice something. It says, look what it says in verse 2. It's almost like John knows exactly what's happening. He's trying to convince or tell the church that we are to love like Jesus. And look what verse 2 says. It says, the evening meal was in progress. And the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Why does John add that detail? It's because the original readers would have read this, and the moment they heard Judas, like the whole crowd would have been like, boo, like we know what happens, he betrays Jesus. But John John is trying to convey something. Jesus loved Judas. And they're like, well, yeah, not not as much as like Peter, the rock. You know, the, the people's eyebrows, he's awesome. Peter. No, he loved Judas. Some of some like if you ever watched The Office, and, and you remember like Michael Scott, the way he would treat Toby. Like he had a team and he loved everybody. But then like Toby, he would like give him one of these, like just like make him, you know what I'm talking about? Sometimes we think that Jesus reluctantly selected Peter in order to fulfill some prophecy written by the prophet Isaiah or given to the prophet Isaiah. That it's like, oh, I, I guess I got to have a, a betrayer, so here's Judas. And the entire time, Jesus is looking at Judas like, you know, like you're going to betray me. No. Jesus loved Judas as much as any other disciple. Some of you are like, well, well wasn't it prophesied that he would betray Jesus? So Jesus knew that was going to happen? Yeah, he did. So wouldn't that automatically mean he would treat him a little less, knowing that what was prophesied to happen to his life no i don't believe that here's here's what i honestly believe i believe that there was grace available to judas and just because it was prophesied that he would fall headlong and spill out in the valley of death like just because it was it was prophesied i don't believe that that was the fulfillment of that like the prophecy didn't say this must happen it was saying it will happen you know what i'm saying and i believe in every moment when jesus was teaching his heart was for Judas to repent. Because guess what? Judas betrayed Jesus, but so did every other disciple. Peter quit and went back to his old job. He's like, I guess I'm not going anywhere. I guess he lied. 
all the disciples fled. It even tells us that Mark ran off naked. Like his, someone grabbed the hold of his garment in the garden. He just took it off. He just slipped out of there and just ran out naked. He said, I'm done with Jesus. Everybody betrayed Jesus, and yet Jesus loved them despite their betrayal. He loved them despite their betrayal. To love like Jesus means to love even the one who betrayed And you may have a list of people who sit lower on your rank of love, but God's heart for you this morning is to tear that list to shreds and say, Lord, help me to love like you indiscriminately, without any bias, without an ambition. Help me to love like you, Jesus, because that's how you love me. Because when I betrayed you, and when I failed you, you ran after me. And I believe in this room there are some of us who are in this place where we have kept ourselves in our own proverbial holding tank, where we're, we're not allowing ourselves to enter into the presence of God because we've done too much and have gone too far. And God's heart for you this morning is to realize that His love is the only thing that can penetrate that tank and those walls that you've placed up. And His desire is to shatter those down so that He can hold you and grip you in His love and so that you can demonstrate that same kind of love to others. We are called to love despite our betrayal. And you may be looking at this and saying, how am I supposed to do that? How did Jesus do that? Some of people say, oh, it's because he was fully God and both fully man. That's, that's why he was able to do that, because he was fully God. It was, I don't have that. I don't have the fullness of God in me. I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not a, I can't do that. I don't, I don't believe Jesus was leaning into his, his divinity to love people fully. What was it? Let's keep reading. John is going to answer that perfectly. Verse 3 tells us this, Jesus knew. Remember I told you we were going to see that quite a bit. He wasn't afraid. He wasn't apprehensive. There was never any doubt. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. Jesus was confident in the power that he possessed. It says this, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Jesus knew where he was, what he was, where he was from. He knew who was behind him. He knew where he was going. And because he had the full confidence of the presence of God with him, he was able to love how we see him love. In fact, this is a, how do we know this is what is intended in this passage? Because look at verse 4. So he got up. As a response to knowing these things, as a response to knowing, or in response to knowing that the Father put all things under his power, that he had full authority, Listen, the same authority Jesus had, you and I have. Because he went to the grave. The same power that raised Jesus from the grave is for us. It's available to us. He put all power under his feet and that he had come from God and was going to God, returning to God. That confidence allowed him to get up from the meal, take off his outer clothing, wrap a towel around his waist, and after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash all his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Why is this important? You see, it was custom at this time, whenever you would have a feast with your friends, the leader or the host of the party would also hire a servant to wash the feet and purify the people, prepare them for the meal. In this day and age, everybody wore Birkenstocks and they would get dust all over their feet. And they would be caked with 
the mud of traveling around the region. Some stepped in manure. It was kind of nasty and gross. So they would get the lowest person of the group, oftentimes the younger person or a hired hand, to come in and wash the feet of everybody else. And I could just imagine being in this room. Everyone's looking around like, okay, wait a minute, I'm hungry. When is this meal getting started? We've got to wash our feet first. And everyone's looking around like who's going to do it. And the Bible actually tells us that they start arguing among themselves over who is the greatest. I could just imagine Peter saying, dude, I am the best preacher. I ain't touching those feet. And I could imagine Andrew saying, hey, I've, I've given the most to missions. I ain't touching those feet. I could imagine... Bartholomew saying, I, I am the most gifted. I'm not touching feet. Judas saying, hey, I'm the treasurer. I'm not touching feet. And while they're all fighting amongst each other, not out of a display of, fine, I'll do it, but out of a, a submitted heart of love, Jesus gets up, begins to shame himself as the rabbi, as the leader, as the master. He takes off his outer garments and is wearing his undergarments. He wraps a towel around him. He takes on, he dons the apparel of a servant and he stoops down and he fills water in a basement. He begins to wash all of his disciples' feet. Every single one of them. And he didn't skip over Judas because he knew what he was going to do. No, no, I can just imagine Jesus praying over every single one of them. Lord, I, I, I know where I'm going in a few moments. I know I'll be betrayed and I know I'm going to the cross, but I pray, I pray for Simon. I pray that you keep him safe. And Lord, I pray for Peter. Even Jesus even says, Peter, I've been praying for you that this, the enemy wouldn't sift you as wheat. Like, just pray, Lord. I pray for his strength. I pray that as he betrays me, that you would call him back and he would return to me ever so faithfully, going through every single person. And when he gets to Judas, he's like, Lord, I know it's prophesied that he will betray me, that he'll hurt me, and that he'll give me up for 30 pieces of silver, the most precious person to have ever been here. God in the flesh, he's going to betray me for 30 coins. Lord, but I pray that you protect him. I pray that you'll be with him. He's going through this list, praying for people, and as we see this demonstration, this exuberant love, how is he able to pray or love someone despite betrayal? Gives us the answer. Because he was full of holy confidence. This confidence didn't come from that love was reciprocated to him it came because he knew who he was because he came from the father and he was returning from the father he knew that he had authority friends the way to powerfully demonstrate God's size love towards others is by first understanding God's strong love towards you if you feel like you're struggling in this department love is only given if it has been received if you feel like you're lacking in the fullness of demonstrating God's love can I say it's only because you have yet to experience the fullness and the demonstrative love of God he loves you today friend he loves you today the way to powerfully demonstrate God's size love towards others is by first understanding God's strong love towards you. You see, the writer of this gospel, John, the older he got, he, he penned other, what is called epistles, letters to the church. And he was up in age. Some say this was the, the final letters, canonical letters in the gospel or in the New Testament. 
And John is writing, and he says this. Now he's an old man. He was once a young man, and he was loved by Jesus. And now look what it happens at his older age. He says this. This is love. This is the definition of love. Not that we loved God first, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. You see, religion says love God, and if you love God enough, then he will love you. But Jesus completely turns that on its head. The kingdom flips it upside down, and he says, it's not that you can somehow love God. It's that he loved you first. Baggage and all. Addictions and all. Messes and struggles and all. He loved you first. Sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Verse 11, he says, dear friends, I I love what other translations say. It says, my my little children. Same way Jesus referred to John, he is now referencing that same way, exact same word to the church that he is loving. My, My friends, dear friends, since God loved us, we also, in response to his love, ought to love, what's that word? confidence and finally in complete humility as we continue the text look what it says here in verse 6 it says Jesus came to Simon Peter who said to him Lord you're not going to wash my feet and Jesus replied you do not realize what I am doing but later you will understand no said Peter you shall never wash my feet you, you don't realize this is beneath you Jesus like no you can't, you can't wash these Jesus tells him plainly. He says, listen, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Peter, you have nothing of spiritual significance to offer me. I must wash you. That's the way this grace works. It's not grace for some who have sinned the worst. It's grace for all. It's, It's we've all failed. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We have all sinned. You and I drink from the same cup. We go to the same source because I'm a pastor doesn't mean that I don't have to go to Jesus and surrender. We all go to him. He says this, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. And Simon, out of a complete desire to be with Jesus, says, then Lord, not just my feet, but my hands, my head. I, I haven't scrubbed this back in a couple years. Like, Jesus, please wash me completely. And Jesus answered, he said, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. Now, Jesus is saying, listen, Simon, when you accepted me as your Lord and Savior, I washed you. When you, when you had already looked forward to my crucifixion, I, when, when, you, when you put your faith in me as Messiah, I, I washed over you. The moment you give your life to Jesus, you are cleansed of all unrighteousness. You are purified of all iniquity. Jesus washes us completely. He said, but what I'm doing here here for he knew who was going to betray him he's like and you are clean though not every one of you i don't think he that was a passive aggressive hot shot at at judas he's like judas not every one of you is clean i I believe that was the heart of jesus once again prodding judas towards repentance that's all it could be he said for he knew who was going to betray him and that was why he said not everyone was clean the next verse tells us this when he had finished washing their feet He put on his clothes, returned to his place, and said, do you understand what I have done for you? Do you guys get this? That that I'm I'm the Messiah, I'm the master, and I've 
I've, I've humbled myself to, to serve you and to love you. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked him. He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that's what I am. I am master. I am the rabbi. I am the teacher. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should wash, what is it? One another's feet. Now, I'm not pulling out basins and having everybody sit down. We're going to wash each other's feet. I don't believe Jesus meant that because he literally called it a symbol. We're going to see that in a second. Uh, Verse 15, look what it says. He says, I have set an example. The next next verse, I have set you an example. What does it mean to wash each other's feet today? That means in which ways can I lower myself and take on the lowest position to meet the felt needs of someone else? In the early church, it was washing their feet, but today it's providing a meal asking difficult questions to bring about true solutions. How are you doing? Can I help you financially? Is, is there something you need? Can I, can I provide for your family? Oh, I, I know you're sick. Can I, can I visit you in a hospital? Uh, listen, I, I know your marriage is on the rocks. Can we be praying with you? Can we partner with you? Listen, we need each other. We need this. So we see if he says, you should do as I have done for you. Now, if it stopped there, it would have been enough. Right? Like, that, that would have been great enough. All right, we, we are to love without measure. We are to love despite betrayal. We are to love in holy confidence. We are to love in complete humility. If that would have been enough, that would, if that was it, that would have been enough. But Jesus is so good that he attaches to those things. And if we love like that, we will be blessed. Who wants God to bless them? Don't, don't, if your hand is down and you are telling yourself that you have everything you want from the Lord, no, I want the Lord to bless me. I want the Lord to increase my effectiveness in his kingdom. I want to be able to walk the streets and public and people just to know that the presence of God is there. I want the Lord's favor. That's literally what blessing means. I want the Lord's face to turn towards me. The Bible tells us in Psalms that he he allows the sun to rise on the righteous and unrighteous. He he pours out rain on the holy and those who are unholy. But he says the Lord chooses to shine his face on those who fear him. The word to shine your face upon is literally blessing. Blessing. God turns his attention towards you. I want the Lord's attention on me. Not because I'm an attention hog, but because I can't dream of living this life without the Lord's presence. I need his blessing. I need it. And look what he says here at the very end of this passage. He says this, Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. If we love one another, like Jesus has commanded and has modeled and has now said this is what is going to exemplify the church. This is proof of the church. If we love like that, if we serve one another like that, he says you will be blessed. Listen, to love one another like Jesus is to serve one another like Jesus. Proverbs eleven twenty five tells us clearly, a prosperous or a generous, uh, generous person will prosper. 
whoever refreshes others will themselves be refreshed. When we serve, you better believe. Listen, there's a reason why we don't call them volunteers in the church. Because the church doesn't volunteer. We serve. We take on the position of a servant. And when I'm making coffee, when you're making coffee for someone, you're not doing it because it's a cool hipster place. You're doing it because you're serving the love of Jesus. When you open up a door and greet someone on the way and you are saying, I see see the hand of God in your life. I see that you are created in his image. You are equal. I, I love you. Welcome to church. When you join a community group, you are saying, listen, I know I'm destined for this. I'm designed to be in community. When you lead in kids' church, you are saying, listen, we don't believe that it, the moment you're 13, you are a, a citizen of the church. No, no, no. You value now. You are important now. And we do this because God has done it towards us stand together as we wrap this up. Father, I know it's by your design. Over a hundred times in the New Testament alone, you say the words of one another. You are very concerned with how we treat one another. And today the focus is, is our love towards one another, our service towards one another. Thank you, Jesus, that that you have referenced frequently this word so that we can be concerned with it. Help us to love. Help us to serve. Father, it's, it's your desire that our church be full of men and women, young and old, who are servants in your kingdom, in this church, in this body, meeting the needs of one another. Father, I pray that this morning you are calling some to join the serve team pray that if there's someone here who maybe hasn't served in a long while or ever before, I pray that today, this moment, is the turning point. As we prepare ourselves for next week when we go to one service and put everybody under one house, I pray, Lord, that we would have new people to serve. Father, I pray for our upcoming convoy event where we are going to see literally thousands of people on this property receiving resources and the love of God. I pray, Jesus, that you would call us to serve. Those goals that you have given us, 100 members on that serve team, I pray that we would hit that goal. The $5,000 that we need to raise to give away 500 backpacks, I pray that we would reach that goal. I pray that today, because the power of our Savior, of our God towards us, is shining so brightly, I pray, God, that we could reflect it to those around us, that we could love one another, that we could serve one another. We love you, Lord. We ask this in your name, Jesus. We receive your love. Come on, if you're thankful for that love, can you give them some praise this morning? Thank you, Lord. Help us to love, Jesus. We ask this in your name. Amen.